Hello and welcome to the People, Place and Nature podcast. This week we're joined by Dusty Gedge and we'll be talking about how we make cities green. I don't mean all that sustainability and technology stuff, I mean literally. How do we get plants and trees onto buildings? And how do we need to rethink the city as a whole to be able to achieve this and, and how it functions? Well, I really enjoyed this episode and I hope you do too. Hello, we're here today coming from a very variable London, um, looking at an incredible green roof with Dusty Gedge here. He's the president of the European Green Roof Federation of Green Roof and Wall Associations. That's it, yeah. yeah. Um, and a board member of the trade body GROW here in the UK. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, so uh, let's just sort of explain all that. GROW, the Green Roof Organization, is the UK's Green Roof trade body. And the federation is the collection of 14 to 15 national associations like GROW that have come together. It's not an EU federation, it's a, it's a Europe federation. And yeah, I'm the president. I've been the president for 13 years. Mm. <laughs> Long time. Long time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the trouble is with a lot of these things is the titles get progressively more challenging to, to keep track of, I find. So, yeah, well, uh, I didn't give thanks you the- Thanks for explaining. It's a German federation. I didn't give you the German title because <laughs> I struggle to even say that. Europäische Federation Lebauwerk Begrunnen. That's really complicated. Yeah, I'll leave, definitely leave that one to you. <laughs> yeah. But we thought it'd be really interesting to have a look at some of the green roofs and what's going on in London. So we find ourselves on one on one here, which is quite quite an impressive one. Yeah, it's and uh, yeah. It's quite a few others around you can see as well. So I don't know if you want to explain a bit about what's going on with green roofs and the challenges they're facing and what's happening in London. Well, yeah, I mean, when I first got involved in this, um, which is worth saying, uh, I, I'm I'm actually an act, actor and a circus performer. I got involved in this. I don't have any. Uh, knowledge of the construction industry when I got involved. I was just a bird watcher and I found this rare bird and we came up with this idea about brown roofs to, to mitigate for this bird. This is about 1997. And I then ended up flying to Switzerland finding out all sorts of stuff about why we could do green roofs, even though everybody was telling me we couldn't. And what's, what's great now, we're on this roof. This was a planning condition about 2004, was installed about 2008. But if you go around the city of London, where we're in the city now, the you know, city of London has the, the densest area of green roofs, um, certainly in the United Kingdom, but maybe even in Europe, because you've got about 7.9 square meters per citizen. Mm -hmm. And you know, Berlin, the whole of Metro Berlin has um, one meter squared. And so over the 20 years I've been involved, you know, the City of London made their first kind of policy thing about 2002. So nearly every new building in the City of London over the last 18, 19 years has in some way been constrained to have some kind of green roof. Mm. Um, you know, one of the exceptions, of course, is uh, uh, the walkie-talkie, which has got a sky garden inside. Mm. And obviously that was a planning thing, that, you know, the public can go up into this closed garden. But you can look over the City of London, and I kind of calculate, and it's, you know, it's not granular accurate, that being somebody who likes nature is a bumblebee is never more than about 250 meters from a green roof in the city of London. And that's the city of London. But in 2008, Greater London Authority, um, I helped campaign and then wrote the technical document to support the uh, London Green Roof Policy, which came into being in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a report in 2019 uh, to celebrate the policy because we went from about, you know, two, 20 years ago, there's probably about 20,000 square meters in the whole of Greater London, not even that. There's now, my last calculation, because I've just mapped it again, is it's 1.9 million square meters of green roofs in London. And the only way you make green roofs happen is through policy. 
Yeah, and we have a London policy, and there are a few other places that have policies. But um, you know, Cambridge has got one recently. But really, London's led the way because of the uniqueness of the Greater London Authority and about how you know London can make these sort of long-term strategic planning processes. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's, it's amazing to see how quickly the change is, is starting to happen. You know, most new buildings are starting to have green roofs. But I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between a lot of these green roofs? So you mentioned the Sky Garden, yeah. but then you get more intensive green roofs where obviously people see trees. And that, I think, is what people imagine when they think of a green roof. You think of it as this kind of a forested rooftop covered in trees and big plants, whereas actually something like this, um, you know, could you explain a bit more about this, this roof garden here that we've, we've got? Well, this is not a roof garden, this is a green roof. And so I'll, I'll explain this in a minute, because first of all, the Sky Gardens is not a green roof. Because yeah. the Sky Gardens is inside and there's a glass roof on top of it. So a green roof is a roof that has soil and vegetation. Mm -hmm. um, now there's different types. There's, you know, generically, we have extensive or intensive. And that comes down to maintenance. So what you're talking about, trees and gardens on roofs, that's going to be high maintenance. Mm -hmm. You know, watering, pruning, all the usual stuff that you have in a park and garden. This is an extensive green roof, and there's different types of extensive green roofs. And extensive green roofs are basically low maintenance, mm -hmm. and some people don't maintain them at all. But um, that's really the two, you know, there's a halfway house, there's a called a semi-intensive semi or semi-extensive, and there's one which I'll show you later on. But, you know, when we get into the extensive, we have to be very, very particular about how we talk about extensive green roofs and what those types are. So when we get into the extensive green roof thing, um, there are different types. And the way I want to describe this, because I know a lot of landscape architects will be watching this, a lot of architects, is, you know, travel is once we're on this type of thing, which is not really accessible to people. We're in, you know, the, sadly, the mentality of people is to buy a product, mm -hmm. buy a system. So we have sedum, we have biodiverse, and they're the two main types in the Grow Code of Practice, which is going to be launched on June the 6th this year. And I'm just highlighting that so that people actually read it. <laughs> um, now, what happens is in the world of architecture, when you don't have a planning policy is, oh, give me a green roof and make it as light as possible. Yeah. And that's really where the sedum idea comes from because sedums, you can make these blankets where they're pretty thin, can sort of survive on very, very, you know, 20 mil of rock wool or 20 mil of substrate. But the grow code says it should be on 60 millimeters of substrate. <laughs> and you do need to actually irrigate them in droughts. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's, people just go, oh, I, okay, tick the box. And I get people telling me, oh, well, we designed lots of green roofs. I said, no, no, <laughs> sorry, you've just, you've just got a cedar roof and shoved it up. This one is a cedar roof, which has been turned into a biodiverse green roof. And that's got these substrate mounds, and it's got these wildflowers in it. And really, you know, the way London tries to do it in the back of all the policies and the planning condition is, you know, we want 80 to 150 mil of substrate planted and seeded with wildflowers and sedums. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we get well, this. Well, just while we're here, yeah. so why so why are you putting up, you know, piles of logs? Why are you putting up, you know, well, why I, are these mounds I, here? I think we'll come back to that in a minute. Come yeah? back to that in a minute, Because yeah. I have to then go back to that bit because we're just doing types, yeah? Then we get yeah, to okay, granular detail. Sure. I've got to do that else I'll get confused, yeah? <laughs> so then, you know, again, we're always, you know, this is a big, big issue in green roofs. You know, I want instant effect. 
Yeah, the architect, yeah. the designer wants instant effect. Well, it's because it's and, easy and cost-effective well, no, no, a lot no, of the time as well, isn't it? Instant effect is about, I want it to look good on the day it opens. Yeah. And that is really not a good way to do vegetation. So, you Or know, landscapes in general. Yeah, yeah, so we get these yeah. wildflower blankets now as well yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But really the best way to do a green roof in terms of its long-term health is to plant and seed it. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got to bring up the other type because... <laughs> Um, I'm partly responsible for the other type that people are still using. It's not raining, so shall we carry on? Yeah, let's carry yeah. on, yeah. So you'll still find a lot of people will say, councils and planning departments will say, I want a brown roof. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of the five people who invented the term brown roof. And I was one of the, probably the person at the time in the late 90s and early noughties who really got it into people's consciousness and it was part of the Olympics and it's part of this planning policy and that planning policy. And I get people come up to me and say, oh, Mr. Gage, you don't understand. We want a brown roof. And I go, I do understand <laughs> because actually I was the one who really promoted it. So the brown roof idea was that, these are the early days where there was no really green roofing companies, you know, mm. other than sealant companies. So a bunch of nature lovers like me down in Deptford Creek went, well, okay, we've got this bird called the Black Red Star, which mm. I'll talk to you about later on. What we want to do is shove the crushed brick and concrete on the roof mm -hmm. and let all the plants come as they do. And that was about 1998 we came up yeah, with that idea. Yeah, that here as well. And then I flew off to Switzerland, met a few people in Europe, and they just went, that's a really stupid idea. Mm. And it really is a stupid idea. Oh, there's a dunnock singing over there. Um, because when you put crushed concrete on a roof, it doesn't hold any water. Mm -hmm. and therefore, you get really, really xeric conditions. And also, when you let self-colonisation happen, you get all the plants you don't want on a roof. Yeah. Buddlier. Yeah. You know, Canadian fleabane. And so we realised this about 2002, 2003, and we did all this research. So we moved to this idea of the biodiverse green roof, that you seed them, you use a good commercial green roof substrate, mm -hmm and you'll get a better result overall. So I just wanted to highlight the brown roof because there's people still saying to me, oh no, Mr. Gedge, we need a brown roof. And I'm going like, no, no, you do not need a brown roof because it's a really bad idea. <laughs> so here we are in another part of the green roof. And this is a bit different to the others because this is actually managed and more engaged with, but the other area is kind of more left alone really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they were set aside for nature conservation really, but th th this was set aside originally for extra air conditioning. And yeah. so the company, they started a staff, staff food growing um, process. So, you know, this is, there's about five or six staff members who come up here and food grow in normal times. Obviously it looks a bit tawdry at the moment because obviously Nobody's been in the office for a year and a half, and so it hasn't been looked after as well. But, you know, there's a context here talking about COVID and also talking about mega cities. You know, access to green space in cities is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And in dense urban cities like the city of London, Sao Paulo, you know, Mexico City, Seoul, you think of any mega city, green roofs are really good places for people to have access to green space maybe grow food, but also maybe also just be able to sit by a really wild, unmanaged green roof. It's one of my big bugbears because technically some of the planning conditions now say, oh, those green roofs are there for biodiversity, nobody's allowed on them. And I'm going like, well, you know, I walk on Blackheath, which is, you know, just a big sort of dry grassland. You know, surely if people lived in, you know, um, apartment blocks and could go on the upper roof and just sit yeah. by a wild, grassland what's wrong with that they do that in berlin but generally when we when we think about oh it's going to be accessible to people suddenly gets into high-end landscape 
Yeah. You're like, well, why does it have to be iron landscape? Why can't it just be, you know, naturalistic, biodiverse green roofs? So people are sitting in, a, you know, if they're sat in a nature reserve. Exactly. Well, it's, you know, a lot of people don't travel out of the city, which is something people, people don't realise. Yeah, yeah. You know, my mum used to work on a farm where they took lots of kids from London and they'd take them out and show them, you know, sheep in the fields yeah, and yeah. asking them about, oh, have you ever seen a tractor before? And the kids would all say, oh, yeah, I have, you know, but on TV, they'd never seen yeah. one in real life. Yeah. So actually, you don't realise that a lot of people, this is where they spend the majority of their time. And if they're not getting access to it here, they're not getting access to it anywhere. Well, also so inversely, inversely, people drive out of the city to go to nature. Yeah, when they could have it right, on their doorstep. Well, you yeah. know, people, I'm from the countryside, well, actually from the yeah. coast down East Ken. People say to me, oh, Dusty, you're into nature. Why do you live in, in London? I go like, because it's actually full of really interesting nature. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's again, it's this myth, oh, I, I better get out to the countryside to, to, to make contact with nature. Yeah. You could actually have all nature in cities if you greened up all the roofs, but don't make them all formal parks. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. It's about diversity. You know, I, I used to be on the London Food Board, you know, people used to talk about an industrial-scale urban farming. I used to go, like, oh, my God, here we are. We're going to have rows and rows of lettuces, you know. Mm. This community food growing as a social activity, I think it's fantastic. And if we had a diversity of roofs, you know, parks, gardens, some wilder, some less wild, a diversity of green spaces across a city like London, it'd just be really interesting. And would also make the city better from a climate change adaptation point of view, and from, you know, that's a climate crisis. Yeah. And also from the biodiversity crisis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can, we can do these things. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people don't realise that these more managed landscapes actually have huge ecological value. You know, quite often people, you think of your wilderness, which is left alone. But actually, you know, that is not necessarily as good as it could be if people were engaged. And people often are kept very separate from the natural world, where actually they have a really important relationship with it and can offer huge benefits to the natural world. But we're often seen as two totally, you know, opposed yeah. forces. Yeah. Well, I've got an anecdote, actually. I've never shared anything that um, I've spoken to live is, when I was like, I think I was about 11 and I was, used to do some work for my stepfather who was a structural engineer down in, in Margate, Thanetway. Mm. And there was, there was this park, and at, at one end of the park, there was a great big mound of rubble, yeah? Mm. Now, my, my stepfather was a lot older, you know, he was born in 1922, and he used to say to me, look at this lovely amenity grassland, lovely, and look at that pile of rubbish over there. Yeah. And that's where all the kids were playing. Yeah. And that's where all the birds were. Yeah. But, you know, culturally, amenity grassland were really like that. Mm. But that big pile of rubbish where all the kids were on their mountain bikes and where the linnets were and the goldfinches were, the most interesting thing in that part was the, the rubbish at the end of it. Exactly. And it's this... Uh, English garden idea and you know going to the managed landscape there is nothing I can think of in the United Kingdom that has not been impacted on by humans historically yeah positively and negatively so heathlands are there because of people mm -hmm. a lot of marshlands are there for people one of my favorite nature reserves in the country is Stob Marsh which is down in East Kent I was there actually at the weekend and somebody said, oh, you know, this is a pristine wilderness. I said, no, no, no. Mm. <laughs> it used to look like that, which is wet meadows, cattle meadows. I said, mm. Stubmarsh is here because of a collapsed coal mine. Yeah. Stubmarsh was not like that until the Kent coal mine at Chislet collapsed. So we, and there's the Wigan flashes. So we sometimes have this myth that, oh, you know, I could really go on about this one, you know, because, you know, I'm, I've been involved in nature since I was a kid, you know. And is this, there's something in Western, you know, Judeo-Islamic Christian culture that harks back to some kind of Eden. Yeah. 
You know, like everything was, oh, it was fine before the 1945 and math suddenly started to farm the country in a bad place. So there's a whole preservation culture, which I'm not saying is bad, you know, preserving some things is good. But actually, you know, this myth that some, at some time everything was perfect, I don't get it. I really don't. And it's like, oh, we've got to go back to the time before we ate the apple. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested yeah. in what, what are we going to do to future-proof the cities now, create good places for wildlife now, and not be retrospective to some past Eden, which really is a myth. Well, it's unachievable because we've we built on everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the thing. You know, we often think, yeah, let's, as you say, go back to what we what we had before. But actually, in a way, you lose such an opportunity for innovation, especially when you come to such built-up areas like this. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, need yeah. to be innovative. Well, people say to me here, you know, I've seen, and I won't mention any names, say, oh, no, what we're going to do is we're going to make a green roof that's going to hark back to pre-Roman times in London. I'm going like, pre-Roman times in London? I mean, give me a break. You know, <laughs> can, we, can we create a landscape that is for the 21st century, that delivers mm. for biodiversity for the 21st century, except for some idea that maybe, maybe it was like this? before 52 BC and the Romans invaded. <laughs> but, you know, you know, Sammy, I wrote here, I'm sorry, but there is so much of that mm. still in our culture. You know, there's a political party, which is green. You know, people locally are saying to me, oh, we want to go around and sh look at all the places we need to preserve mm. in, in where I'm from. I'm going like, most of those are preserved already. Yeah. You know, what what are we going to do for the future for wildlife and to, for climate adaptation. That's it, and how do we build that in to, to what we we're doing? And that's one of the most fundamental things because as, as we were talking about earlier, you know, it, it goes back to infrastructure and things like that. You know, we need to change the way we view the natural world. Yeah. And I have a very infrastructural view of, of these things, as I know, yeah, you, know yeah. you do as well. Um, and actually we need to be looking at what services do they provide and how, how are they gonna provide for the future and how do we design that in and how do we cater for that? And that's one of the biggest challenges at the moment, but also the biggest opportunity for, for what we're doing, I think. Well, I mean, it's imperative. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely it is. But, you know, we have to, we have to change a whole a bunch of stuff there, if I may. But let, let's go for a walk yeah. and I'll talk about that. Yeah. So how do we go about, you know, creating this infrastructure? You know, we've said landscape needs to be an integral part of, of, of what we do and it becomes an integral part of how we think about how we design the city. You know, how do we deal with hydrology and all those type of things? So how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, let's just consider what infrastructure is. That's the first thing, because it's actually interesting where we're going with green roofs and green walls, because, you know, here we are on a modern building yeah. And I can tell you now, like this is all air conditioning units. This is all chillers and air conditioning units right yeah. in the middle of this green roof, yeah. Mm -hmm. So from an infrastructure point of view, this is what's important. Yeah. Right? That's an air conditioning unit, you know, in the middle of a heat wave, nobody, nobody cares, nobody worries about buying an air conditioning unit. And I've got to tell you this now, and I read it, and I've never found, I mean, it was ages ago. Since about 1920, architects have not been, buildings have not been designed for people. Mm -hmm. They've been designed for air conditioning units. Right, now, you just consider that. So fundamentally, when the modern air conditioning unit came up, it's a good idea if you're in a hot country, mm -hmm. we design buildings for air conditioning units, nothing else. Mm, yeah. Now, you know, in terms of soil and vegetation and nature-based solutions, nature-based solutions are about air conditioning. Yeah. So if you put lots of green roofs up, in a city like London and we have a heat wave, technically, and there's a lot of modeling for this, the city should be cooler, mm -hmm. the rooms for space below it should be cooler, and therefore we should use less air conditioning. 
So, you know, I would contend if, if architects started to design buildings for vegetation soil mm. and not air conditioning units, mm. you'd probably have less air conditioning units. Now, this yeah. is just an interesting thing. And so you go, right, okay, that's, so soil and vegetation in terms of this, a building like this is part of the air conditioning. Yeah. Forget what it looks like, I don't care. Mm. It's part of the infrastructure of dealing with um, air conditioning, which uses a lot of carbon. So the other thing is, of course, sustainable urban drainage comes up. So what do we do when we make a plot? We go, right, there's the drains. Blah, blah, blah. When you make a roof, one of the most annoying things if, you, if you're involved in, in trying to design green roofs, interesting green roofs, is suddenly I get the roof plan, everybody decided where the water's going. Yeah. Because the green roof is not considered part of the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go, right, before there's any drains or anything, and we go to a drainage outlet, I mean, before you decide where all that is, we're going to decide where the green roofs are. Yeah. Right? So green roofs are the first start of the drainage cycle on a building. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Just like rain gardens should be and swells at the ground level. Yeah. So that is nothing to do with biodiversity. That's nothing to do with landscape architecture. That's infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And if we change the culture how we design buildings from that start, you'll probably have less downpipes, store more rainwater, and probably have more impact on suds. Present moment, never happens. Well, exactly. Well, yeah, indeed. I mean, it was a big problem even in, in the landscape world. You know, we need, to, we need to look at these things more holistically. And we need to yeah. look at things and go, well, actually, how do we tie up all of these services we need to provide at the beginning? Yeah. And actually, it's putting, you know, hydrology, ecology, and all of these things in first. How do we meet those targets? And then how do we design around them? You know, yeah. where do the buildings actually go? But how housing are we going to do estate? that? But well, that's we the question. Do, yeah. We have to turn around and say to the client, before any engineer gets anywhere near anything, mm -hmm. we're going to try and work out where the soil and vegetation is going to go on the roofs, on the sides, and exactly, yeah. to decide what infrastructure you then need inside the building. And I've got to finish this up. The greatest success, people in the sustainable urban drainage world will know this name. Tom Lipton from Portland, Oregon. He was the guy who started all that. And Tom Lipton was a landscape architect. And he always says, he's a very personal friend of mine, he says to me, Dusty, my biggest success was landscape runs sustainable urban drainage in Portland, mm. not the engineers. Mm. And it's quite interesting, which is not to knock the drainage engineers. What happens in Portland, as Tom said to me, and I went there and was given actually a Blue Heron Award, actually, very nice. Um, <laughs> and he says, look, there's a new development come. We design all the landscape and everything, and then the engineers then modify it to ensure that it works that it works yeah. from you know in terms of volumes and things mm -hmm. the present moment of time what happens probably here is the engineers go right well, there you go now you can dress it that's it and, exactly. and, and so we we do it the wrong way around because landscape and ecology is seen as beautification and fluff it's not seen as integral infrastructure and there's a word called green infrastructure, nature-based solutions, and ecosystem services. Still, culturally, we're viewing it as fluff. Yeah, but the thing is as well, there's such a strong economic case for it, and for a number of reasons. And I've talked about this in previous episodes, yeah, and we've got people yeah, wanting yeah. to talk about it in the future. But it saves an awful lot of money for clients as well. You yeah. know, engineering solutions are very expensive. The softer solutions are much cheaper. If you can go and figure out where water's gonna go and how it's gonna work and yeah. use the landscape that's there, yeah. there's a huge opportunity to save. And also, you know, we've been involved in it recently in some of our projects in terms of negotiating land. Because actually, when you start looking at the land, you go, actually, this land doesn't have the capacity for the houses we thought it once did. And when you start looking at it through more of a landscape lens and you realize that getting all of this stuff in will save you a lot of money, but potentially you won't get as many houses as you thought you might do, but you're gonna save so much cost 
overall, you can yeah. negotiate for a cheaper value on the land and all that type yeah, of thing I'd too. I argue, I'd argue that you could probably have the same amount of houses. You just have to go taller and build denser, which of course, in the English rural communities, we don't want dense, we want nice pitched roofs. And you go like, hang on a minute, you know, we can deliver and vegetate and make all that integral. And so there's a question there about how we are fixated in this country about pitched roofs. No, indeed, you yeah, go to Switzerland, so. It's very, very common in villages and towns to have you know, four or five storey housing blocks and they be covered with green roofs. Well, again, it's how we use the city, isn't it? You know, if they become accessible or people can use them, it becomes, everyone benefits. And there needs to be that wider discussion of how we approach that. But, you know, outside of London or big cities, everything's pitched roofs, two storeys. Indeed. That's a cultural thing we need to challenge as well. But this goes back to your discussion earlier on, on, well, mention of policy. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. happening on policy at the moment. I don't know if you want to talk about the urban greening factor and biodiversity net oh, gain. Oh, well, urban greening factor. Let's go and talk about the urban greening factor out here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but we have a quick message from one of our sponsors. And it's that we're thrilled to announce that Marshalls is the sponsor of this episode. As the UK's leading supplier of sustainable concrete and natural stone products for the built environment, Marshalls is committed to doing the right things for the right reasons, delivered in the right way, ethically and sustainably. From fairly traded stone to low carbon concrete bricks, Marshalls believes we can create better spaces, putting people, communities, and the environment first. Find out more about the firm's green initiatives in our podcast links below. So the other thing we were talking about earlier is, is policy. You know, it's a massive driver behind everything we do. So how is this growing and adapting and changing to, to work with green roofs? Yeah, well, the next 10 years, I think we're gonna find a lot of nature-based solution processes entering policy. And in the UK, London, you know, kind of led the way in terms of green roof and green wall policies. And so the 2008 policy, um, which was, you know, the mayor expects green roofs and green walls in all major developments. Well, actually that's going to change because, um, uh, and it's going to change not in a detrimental way for green roofs and green walls, but we're going to have an urban greening, you know, that black red starts in there now. Look at him. Yeah, He's just in there. Look, I knew this would happen. It's, it's still there. It's just it's behind still there, the thing. Mate. Yeah. You come here and go a bit lower. Ah, oh, it's just flown off. Ah, oh, well. You know. <laughs> well, you know, I've spent, spent hours up here. I've got a few shots of them, but I've never got a video of them, which is what I'm trying to do. But that's a bit of fun, isn't it, eh? As I always say to people, you can't take the bird out of Dusty. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Well, um, obviously we saw a black red start, so I had to go and take a picture of it. Yeah. Obviously black red start's how I got involved in it. But yeah, um, so the new London plan, we won't have a distinct green roof and wall policy, it'll have the urban greening factor policy. And the urban greening factor policy, I, I you know, it, it's a very good thing because it's about you know, there's a plot of land, you know, you've got to score a certain score to meet the urban greening factor. Mm-hmm. And you can change the score depending on where you are in an urban realm. So if you're on a peri-urban realm, you know, the score might be a bit lower because, you know, basically you don't need so much green infrastructure on a peri-urban. But in a dense urban area, the score will be a height to, to um, deliver, you know, good green infrastructure mm-hmm. um, on a plot. And that means you're going to do green roofs. So it won't be a distinct green roof policy, but basically you're going to have to do green roofs. Yeah, no choice, exactly, yeah. What a lot of people misunderstand about the urban green 
you know, the greening factor. It's just a landscape tool mm. to ensure that you've got enough, um, you know, landscape in it. So trees score a certain level, green roof will score a certain level. And, you know, within the urban greening factor at the GLA level, but certainly in the City of London, because the City of London, we help uh, write the urban greening factor for the City of London. You know, we ensured that a good biodiverse green roof actually has a better score than just a simple seed and blanket, you know. So uh, what is exciting is I've noticed that DEFRA are talking about maybe having a national urban greening factor. And I know Manchester, the, the combined authority, are looking at an urban greening factor. And I think it's a really smart tool. Mm. And I, I think it could be transformational. And, you know, on this policy thing, people have said to me, oh, well, we need government to make a national, you know, everybody should, you know, demand green roofs. And I've never been convinced about that, you know, because, you know, I'm, I love my green roofs, but, you know, sometimes maybe the green roof is not the right thing, you know, yeah. another thing is the right thing. And so I think tools like Urban Greening Factor and cities deciding that score, mm. you know, not, not something from central, you know, cities decide that like they do in Germany. Cities decide, or in America, they, they decide exactly what they want. You know, what does the city want? Because mm. of its particular circumstances. And I think that's much more live, that is. So, yeah. um, and how, how's that going to affect other things? So, is that so obviously things are ranked differently, different types of green roof are ranked. Does that affect things like living walls and things as well? Are we going to see more of those? Is it going to help transform yeah, that well, side of things? Because obviously, sometimes where we are now, for example, there's a huge amount of infrastructure on this roof, which obviously limits the amount of, the, of, of green roof there'll yeah. be. Yeah. So, and some buildings will obviously have more or less of that. So, will that lead to changes in other areas where we see more yeah, living walls along the edges or? terraces on lower edges and balconies and things like that which are greened? Oh yeah, I think so, because um, uh, whether it sees more green walls, I, I'm not too sure, but I wouldn't, wouldn't want to say yay or nay on that. Mm. But certainly you'll see a lot more balconies and upper roofs and probably more street trees than you normally would because you've got to get the score. Yeah. You know? And personally, I would set the score a little bit higher than the city's done. Um, to make it a little bit more, uh, you know, you know, a bit harder to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, but what I, it's interesting is when the urban greening factor has been sort of tried out and it's going into policies in other London boroughs, is you know, everybody goes emails me and my colleague Gary and go like, oh, can you do as a training course on the urban greening factor? And you go, it's pretty simple actually. You know, you just add it all up. Yeah. Have you got enough? And it's quite interesting because thinking, oh, it's new, it must be complicated. And it was originally started in Berlin and then it went to Seattle. Uh, well, it went to Malmo and then it went to Seattle. And it's now in, in um, Washington, D.C. And they've got different green area factor or the green area ratio. And we, we've called it the urban greening factor. You know, it's just a really, really pretty simple, but mm -hmm. really effective way to ensure that there is a lot of landscape on development. And also, you know, like what's interesting in the city of London, because, you know, I like this where you can vary. It's not um, it's not locked. Mm. So if you're in a conservation area of the city of London, where you've got a lot of house, old housing and a lot of, um, you know, ancient buildings, you know, the score might be a bit lower. Yeah. You know, so you, you can adapt it to suit. The yeah. city can adapt it or the local authority can adapt it to the places. Or you can have one big new development going up. Let's I don't know, like like. Um, like the one going up at Meadowbank in Edinburgh. Mm. Now, you know, Edinburgh could choose to have a very, very high score for that one because, you know, it's, you know, open space that is going to be turned into, well, it's not actually open space, but, you know, you could have open space which is going to be turned into high density living. You say, right, okay, it's 
open space, it's going to have like, you know, 0.6, not 0.3, you know. You know, so you, cities can be can be quite judicious about how they use it. And I think that's far more intelligent rather than this kind of blanket thing from national government. Because, you know, blanket things from national governments tend to end up being what they are. But on the back of this, the other sort of policy thing which will come into being in, in England is, is biodiversity net gain. And so people are going to me, oh, biodiversity net gain, you must really love that, Dusty. Well, I, you know, not, not a fan, to be honest. <laughs> you know? yeah. And why is that? It's quite limiting? Because it's only, well, as the name suggests, is it primarily looking at biodiversity opposed to the wider environmental objectives and targets we should be aiming for? Because biodiversity is only one facet of what we could achieve in well, terms of green not, infrastructure I, and things, isn't it? Conceptually, biodiversity net gain is a really good idea. Yeah. And basically, like the EU has, a, you know, we have a net gain mm. aspiration. Barclay Homes, one of our principal South East London, uh, South East England developers, they have an aspiration for net gain. The thing is with biodiversity net gain, one of the problems, with, in my experience, I spent most of my time doing nature conservation in the last 20, 25 years in a serious urban context. Mm -hmm. So most of the processes that come out of, you know, natural England DEFRA were designed for non-urban areas. Yeah. And so biodiversity net gain metric, you know, is, is great for a housing estate in the middle of the home counties, but in London, it just doesn't work. Well, and, you know, and I have to be straight here because I've looked at the biodiversity, the net gain metric for green roofs and, you know, and I, I, I'm not speaking out of turn here, quite a few of the London Borough ecologists have said to me, well, you know, it's, it's take us back 20 years. Mm. Because we've managed to do all this biodiverse green roofing. I mean, it's, it's quite bland about it. And to be quite frank, and I'm noticing this, and I know I really shouldn't say it like this because I am a green roof expert, but half of this stuff that's been written about green roofs at a policy level is written by people who don't know anything about green roofs. Yeah. And I'm really sorry. They really do not know anything about green roofs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the trade body, you know, we've got our codes of practice, we've got people like myself. You know, you know, I'm, I mean, I've spent 20 years involved in this. I, don't, I have an agenda to make sure that green roofs go up, which are good mm. for the city, for what the city wants. But you get a lot of academics coming and say, oh, well, you know, yeah, green roofs, and they're reinventing the world, and, you know. We kind of don't need to. Well, we've, you know, we've, sort of figured, day, we've done it 20, enough, now we've figured it out. <laughs> well, you spent 20 years, you know, looking at all sorts of different green roof processes and systems, and you know, and you go, I could have answered that question in a day. Yeah. But, you know, it's just how we do everything. Oh, well, they're very clever people, so they must know about it. You know, I see EU projects, oh, well, oh okay, we're going we're gonna to do EU projects which includes green roofs, and we're going we're gonna to spend three years discovering what green roofs are. Well, that's a lot of money wasted, isn't it? There's people yeah. in the country who could tell you tomorrow. But it's just how everything works, you know. I'm sorry, I'm well, going to No, 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 well, it's, it's a really, it's a really valid know. point because, you know, there are huge risks associated with things like biodiversity net gain. For example, we were looking at a project recently which didn't meet biodiversity net gain um, and you start looking at it and the only real solution is to make more space so actually the only option is to take a few houses out make a bit more space and allow it to go back to nature or, or manage it more sustainably but actually they're still missing a huge trick they're missing all of that stuff about suds and all these other options yeah, yeah, we have yeah, yeah. so there is this real risk of that and as you said in an urban environment it's not always so effective you know because I've worked on various schemes where it's you know an old industrial estate or whatever that's being regenerated and actually there's nothing there so anything you do, in a sense, is net gain, but actually, and that is almost a pass potentially out of achieving, you know, what they could achieve if they looked at it more holistically and at this this higher level. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I'm gonna 
you know, I, I just, I end up going down a, a rabbit hole here, but you know, you know, we've got lots of new tick block exercises. We've got building with nature and this benchmark and that benchmark, you know. And at the end of the day, we have to be careful that, you know, we've got such a legislation, we've got biodiversity legislation and, and you know, really, we need to be going, you know, how do we do all these things and actually do environmental net gain? Mm. And, you know, you know, you you've give me you give me the industrial site, you know, context. You know, you go to an industrial site that's been there for twenty years, and you go on do net gain. You go like, yeah, but you know, how do you measure that net gain? You know, exactly, what we yeah. want to do is say whatever goes in there is not better than was there, but is fit for purpose for the twenty first century, and that's that's some of the problems with with net gain, and I think it's also you know, implicitly one of the problems of doing things about the built environment from a rural perspective. Yeah. Now in your context where, you know, we have to lose a few houses to get biodiversity net gain, yeah, just build full story building, put a green roof on it, you've got your net gain. Oh no, hang on, it's, it's the countryside, we're not allowed full story buildings. Yeah. You go like, right, okay, you know. Well, perhaps we should, you know, you know. And dare I say it, controversial, oh, the green belt. Well, okay, it's an industrial farm, which is just putting pesticides everywhere. What's so valuable about the green belt? You know, yeah. I mean, a lot of people won't like that. <laughs> but you kind of go, well, you know, is it the countryside or is it an industrial factory? Well, this is this goes to the other argument: that public money for public good. You know, we've got to yeah. we, we really have to rethink a lot of our processes and how we adapt them, as you say, to the to the twenty first century and beyond. You know, we've got to rethink how we use the landscape and the environment to benefit us and well, people, place, yeah. and nature. Yeah. You know, how do they all work together, and how do we, you know, get that ecosystem going? Which, inc which includes everything. Ecosystems aren't just ecology, it's how everything works together. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're taping over back to some places before, you know, it goes back to this, this idea that there's this pristine wilderness before we had coal and oil and that we've gone around messing things up, you know. And, you know, we have messed things up, but we're actually part of the ecosystem. Mm. And there's too much of, we're separate. So as an anecdote, you know, which got nothing to do with cities, you know, it's one I always, there's two I keep in my mind about this, and actually three actually. So when, when John Muir went, oh, okay, we'll make this first national park, which is the Yosemite, yeah. You know, the view was we're gonna protect this pristine wilderness, yeah. Well, I can't remember exactly, it was some kind of railway magnet came on shortly afterwards and he wanted to get everybody to go on holiday there. He said, ah, we've got one problem, you know, in this pristine wilderness. There's some human beings live in it mm. who are called the Shoshonan, yeah? Mm. And the Shoshonan were kicked out of the Yosemite, yeah? So, you know, things go on and on and then the wolves are reintroduced. Oh, we're putting it back to balance, yeah? And there's a lot of ecologists at the Yosemite turn and say, well, there's one, one, there's one bit of the ecology missing. Hmm. The Shoshonan. Yeah. And I use that because, you know, we get a lot of people saying, oh, it's human beings, you know, they, they mess everything up. Well, one part of human beings does mess things up. Mm -hmm. But actually, in the UK landscape, you know, Dorset Moorland, Dorset Heathland, it's there because people grazed it. Mm -hmm. You know, nearly every bit of the United Kingdom, its ecology is to do with the human beings of being part of that ecology. So I walk on Blackheath, where all the little dry paths are, you know, that's where all the solitary bees are. I get a question, oh, it's compacted earth, it's not good. And I'm going like, well, my solitary bees really like it. Mm. And so what we do is we have this perception of some kind of pristine wilderness, 
way back when. What we should do is, and I think the living landscapes thing that the Wildlife Trust is, is doing is, is really great because they're almost saying, there's still some retrospectiveness, they're like, we've got to create a living landscape for the 21st century, which is good for biodiversity, good for people. Mm -hmm. And when we're designing places where people live, we need to go, they need to live in nature. And I just want to bring up Barclay Homes again. I can't think of any other, but you know, Barclay Homes virtually in London sells its houses by saying, come live in nature. Hmm. Now, they're not doing that for moral reasons, because <laughs> you know, they're a housing developer. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. They're going, nature sells. Yeah. And so we've got to move away from this thing of, you know, two up, two down, pitch roofs, blah, 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 and go like, right, what, what is the right way to build and to deliver infrastructure through landscape and biodiversity for the 21st century. But we're still, some of us going, oh, no, no, we have to live, live in the past, you know. Yeah, live in the future. Yeah, yeah I'll yeah. just bring up a Birmingham context. When I did a, the early work, because I did a lot of work in the early time in, in Eastside, actually. Mm. And, you know, I had a lot of, nature people in Birmingham saying, oh, you're just encouraging development. I was going like, well, I'm not going to encourage development. I think development's going to happen. <laughs> so what I'm going to do yeah. is try and make those developments better for nature. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't want to tread on anybody's sensibilities from anywhere that I don't live. But, you know, same in South East London, you know, people say, oh, you're, you're, you're just helping developers. I said, well, they're going to build the buildings anyway. Yeah. So if we're going to build the buildings anyway, why don't we make them better for nature? And actually, as we moved on, Make them better for people. Yeah. And there's some brilliant developments in London, which, you know, Barclay Homes is, you know, I always highlight those. Uh, I haven't got a share, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're brilliant developments because, you know, beautiful wildflower meadows, getting suds in there now, and there's green roofs. And, you know, there's this wonderful playground in Kidbrook Village, which has got all these little rain gardens running through it, and the kids can run in the rain gardens, and, and people, commute from two kilometers away to go and play in that yeah. playground because it's a nice place to be. That's it, exactly. Now, well, they aren't buying yeah. houses in that because of that playground. Mm -hmm. I'm dumb. Yeah. Now, when did somebody ever go, oh, a really good playground with suds in it is going to sell flats? That's the future. Yeah, well, this is where we've got um, Adam and Andre from Davies White coming on later. You know, he do a lot of nature play. And, um, you know, they're doing huge amounts of work in this area. And they've got case studies now where they've gone into old play areas, redesigned them, put loads of trees back in. They've got some great before and after images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the value of all the properties are shot, shot up. up. And people are happy to live there. Normally, they go down if there's a playground. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's all about that, you know, designing and getting as much from it as, as possible. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's just that perception. But then, you know, a lot of the time we do do things pretty poorly. So it gives a, you know, it gives a bad perception of these places, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, I just wanted to ask you about more of the international context, because obviously there's a lot of countries and, and places, you know, Singapore springs to mind that we spoke about before the podcast. And they're doing a huge amount with the, you know, city in the garden concept. Um, and there's a huge amount of green roofs and things going on there. Um, and that's now a fundamental part of the whole city's approach to the environment and, and the future. And they've done exactly what you said, you know, they've got green bridges connecting some of these new towers. Um, as I was saying before, it's easy to sit there and think, actually, is this a tokenistic sort of gesture? Is it a bit of greenwashing going on or, or, or whatever? But then we were sat on, on one building, which had a huge swimming pool, um, the yeah. Marina Bay Sands, a huge swimming pool, massive, you know, no, tourist yes. attraction. And we were sat there going, is this actually 
how good is this? And at that very moment, a lizard fell out of the tree onto my, onto my friend, you know, and you think, actually, you know, if they're getting up here, clearly there's, there's some good. And it's of course better to have these things than not, but it's interesting how different places are approaching it. How have you, how have you found it? Well, Looking I mean, we got, you know, my, my little world in terms of green roofs really comes from, from Germany, Switzerland and Austria. And there's thousands of square meters there and across North America, they're doing it. Um, the thing about we have to be careful of, um, I mean, there's some superb green roofs in, um, in America, you know, Salt Lake City, the, 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 uh, the Mormon church. I mean, I've got to go there one day. I mean, you just go up the side of a Cascades mountain onto a meadow on the top, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it's all designed to sit in Utah, you know, it's Utah mm. landscapes. Um, you know, I, there's so much opportunity and, and, and internationally, you know, we're in a temperate climate. It's different from Singapore. You know, generally we do a lot of extensive green roofs, which are dry grasslands. Those dry grasslands can be much, much better, like they are in Switzerland, which is, I brought that idea here. They didn't really do it in Germany and Austria like they do in Switzerland. And I think we can make some really, and we are making some really, really good things happening in London because of that. And I've learned mm -hmm. a lot from continental Europe. And that black red star just flew off again. <laughs> it's just gone around the corner. We might have to break it in a minute. But, um, you know, I'm always really careful of the subtropics mm. and the tropics because it's it's a lot easier to do yes, not, not those, really those intensive yeah. type green roofs. And I'm also cautious of, of the famous hotel in Singapore because, you know, that's really funky, but it's just a swimming pool. You know, I yeah. mean, I'm sorry, that's great. But what, you know, we need whole scale greening and we need diversity of solutions. And, mm. you know, to set a swimming pool on the roof with a few trees around it, that's a bit of bling. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know, in terms of greenwashing, you know, we're on a you know a major uh, legal firm's building here, and you know, I do some work for PwC, and I've got green roofs on all sorts of commercial buildings here, and some people have said to me, "Oh, it's just greenwashing." No, you know, it's interesting. Hey, they have to do it for planning condition, but actually, you know, the Barclay Homes are doing it because they can sell properties, so it's 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 not greenwashing. You know, it's part of part of their process. So you know. We have to be careful of this greenwashing thing. The green roofs that are going up in Greater London, for the most part, are required. But some of the very, very big, um, you know, you know, corporates, the Canary Wharfs and the PWCs, they are genuinely doing these things, and a lot of them are being monitored for biodiversity to go into their environmental reporting, mm -hmm. which affects their FTSE listing. Mm -hmm. You know that. You know, when you look at it at that level. So, you know, some of these big corporations are buying into this. And to me, we need policy, but I want to see every property developer to go like Barclay Homes. We have a net gain aspiration regardless of planning policy. And we have a net gain aspiration environmentally because that's where the market's going. Yeah. You know, and so it's a bit of policy and it's a bit of market forces. That's it. And there's a lot of companies starting to do it. You know, yeah, IKEA yeah. is another yeah. great example. They're doing yeah, yeah. huge amounts for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, huge green well, roofs IKEA as well. IKEA in Greenwich, which I know well, and I go on it a lot. You know, it's it's, you know, it was built on the Sainsbury's, and the Sainsbury's was built in 1999, two years after I got involved in this. And the Sainsbury's was the most sustainable retail store in 1999. Had a bit of turf around the edge. Oh, dusty! Look, that green roof. And I was going, it's just a bunch of turf. IKEA when it opened in 2019, it was the most sustainable retail store <laughs> in the world. And I always say to people in my talks, 
what's the most sustainable retail store going to be in 2039? Mm. And that's where I'm thinking. Yeah. Because it's got all these green roofs on, which we were talking about in 2019. Uh, was it? No, so it was, it was 1999 the Sainsbury's was built and it was mm. the most sustainable sustainable retail store. 20 years later, Ikea was built in 2019 and uh, it was the most sustainable retail store. But a lot of the green roofs and the type of things we were talking about in, you know, 1999, and we were trying to get happen, oh, I couldn't do them then, well, they're on the Ikea roof. And Ikea, to be fair to them, have got some pretty um, strong commitments to this. And their new store in Vienna, completely different to Ikea in Greenwich, lots of climbing plants and you can walk around it, you know, really interesting. And we need more like Ikea to drive this. Hmm. But I think that's where climate change is breaking people up because it's not just, sit, you know, everybody knows they have to do something. And if they don't believe they have to do something, they're on the wrong planet. Yeah. But we're going to get into all sorts of Trumpian issues there, <laughs> which we don't need to do. So we just mentioned Singapore and what's going on there. And there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in European places, but, but what else is going on in Asia? Because it's quite an interesting, well, very diverse continent, a lot of very interesting stuff going on. And a lot of cities there are having to really adapt to climate change, especially, you know, in this, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, what's, what's happening there? Well, I know there's a lot going on in China and China's China. So it's, it's kind of a difficult place to talk about because, you know, I know they've made a lot of green roofs in Chongqi and Shanghai. And, you know, there's the sponge city thing going on, China. Mm. But I think what, you know, some of well, the places- forest cities as well now, don't they? That the forest cities, concepts yeah, yeah, coming yeah. On. yeah. Mm. But, you know, I think what's, that's, I'm quite interested in sort of, um, you know, what's going on in other, well, in what I would call sort of slightly not developed countries. You know, Latin America is a massive continent and um, it's got some really, really big cities. And there's two places I want to highlight there. I mean, actually, Recife's got a policy, which is in, Port in, in Brazil. It was the first to have a green roof policy. But for, for, I'm going to go to a place called Cordoba down in Argentina because they actually, um, I interviewed the guys when I was in Bogota, which I'll come to in a moment. You know, Cordoba's quite dry. And it's really interesting because of the brown roof history that I've got. When I interviewed them, they said like, yeah, 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 well, we're in a really dry place, you know, and we're gonna have, you know, dry brown roofs, you know, mm. because that's, that's the nature of their place. And they're quite committed to having native vegetation in Cordoba in Argentina, which is mm. sort of like, you know, to the, to the uh, east of Argentina. But I met them in Bogota and Bogota is really interesting because, you know, a lot of things going on in Bogota, mm -hmm. um, with green walls and green roofs, but they've also got the Bogota green roof kind of code of practice, which is the most fascinating bit of work that I've come across. So most codes of practice, we have our grow code, we have the FLL, which is German. Most are based on the FLL and the way they work is, you know, they go, right, okay, it's kind of like a construction manual. It's like, right, waterproofing, this, this, this. What Bogota has done, and I really love this, and I think it should be um, should be used. You know, if if the European Commission, Europe wanting to make a code of practice for green roofs in Europe, they should do it the Bogota way. Because what Bogota does, it says, right, okay, we're going to start in the macro. What does the city want? What does it want? What what's its environmental performance that it wants? And then it goes down here, down here, down here, and then it right at the base of the code of practice is all the technical stuff. Mm. But in all the other code of practice, all the technical stuff 
And he goes, oh, well, you get these benefits. And you go, no, no, we need to, we need to turn it over. Mm-hmm. What does the city want? How does it get there? And it's a beautiful thing, and you can just Google Bogota uh, Green Roof uh, Guidelines. There's a wonderful English paper about it, and it's it's a really fascinating read if you're one of those kind of str- sad policy codes of practice guys like me, you know. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I like this stuff. It's done by a guy called Adrian Ibanez and his team from the University of Bogota. And I, I can't sing its praises enough. <laughs> and you could use that as a code of practice for green infrastructure. Yeah. You know, what we do is, oh, right, we got all these pipes and all this. Can we get rid of the pipes and put these rain gardens in? You go like, no, what, what, what does the sea want? Mm. Sea wants landscape. The sea wants landscape and not pipes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so it's kind of, I mean, that's a bit of a cob way to say it, but it's kind of like that. The city wants vegetation and soil. It wants vegetation and soil for sustainable urban drainage. It wants vegetation and soil for cooling. It wants vegetation and soil for biodiversity. We want them on roofs, right? How do we how do we then do that? What we do, because we come from a Western kind of like, right, okay, oh, we've got a roof. Ooh, how do we build a roof? Yeah. Ooh. And then when we do that, we're all risk averse. Mm. And it's all about risk averseness. And that Bogota just goes, what does Bogota want? <laughs> you go like, that's what it wants. I say, yeah, the principles. And, you know, yeah. it's kind of really cool. That's really important, isn't it? Because you never set your sights you never and as we said earlier it's a lot about ambition you know what are they striving to striving to do and 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 why do we want things to be however they're going to be and there's quite often is things being left too late and and not happening yeah so and it's sort of a a segue really or it's tangent you know there's there's a lot of stuff going on about blue roofs and storing water on roofs and you know again you know it's a common theme for me i've designed a few wetland roofs you know and the idea is you know, we were talking about it earlier that, you know, by the time I get to roof, somebody's already decided where all the downpipes going, you know. Yeah. And I and I met this Dutch landscape architect, so we want a cascade of roofs where water cascades down the roofs. And so when I built these wetland roofs, the idea is you, you deliberately keep the water on the roof. Mm-hmm. And so this roof, you know, the water, you know, the downpipe is, I think the downpipe's over here, right in the middle. Let's go and look at it, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a downpipe somewhere around here. Oh, look, there's a downpipe, yeah. I don't want the downpipe there. Yeah. I want the downpipe over there so the water runs onto the next roof. Mm-hmm. And then it runs onto the next roof. And the next roof, however many roofs there are. And each time you could have an ephemeral wetland up here, you could have a minor pond on the next level, you could have a big pond on the next level. Maybe you don't need any drainage pipes. Yeah. Well, of course you will. But because we go like, oh, no, 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 and we can use all these plastic crates and all that, you go, no, no, let's create habitat. Mm. And landscape features. Let's do more with it. Let's do more with it. But it's like, no, 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 that's dressing. No, no, Mm. it's infrastructure. Mm. Again, we go back to the infrastructure thing. That's it, exactly. We'll have a little look now at some of the, what I call, because a lot of what we talk about is the macro. But the basis of the London, the, the, the approach we, we sort of absorbed from Switzerland and we brought to London, it gets into some micro stuff. And it's the micro stuff, which is actually interesting on several levels, but specifically into biodiversity. And we'll just go over this side because um, it's been a particularly cold spring, so everything's a bit late. Mm-hmm. So not all the wildflowers are out. So essentially, we've got this 
This was installed as a seed and blanket, but the yeah. company in question wanted biodiversity delivery and they called me in and they asked me how we can make it. So you might see that just here, on top of this seed and blanket, we just got a mound. And this mound is about 150 to 200 mil deep. So the background supplementary guidance really for green roofs in London is 50 to 150 millimetres. Now, if you've got 150 millimetres, you're going to get lots of wildflowers growing on top of it. So we've got some campions at the moment and um, there's others coming out. You've got all these uh, vipers bugloss, which have come out soon and some trefoil in there. So we've now increased the diversity away from just a sedum, you know, whatever the sedums were. And... Um, the other thing is you put these dried logs up. Yeah. Now, first of all, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I like to nest in them. But when I put these up originally, you can see here the, the way it's kind of making a kind of crescent. Because mm -hmm. the prevailing winds in London are southwesterly. And so wind is the biggest dryer on a roof. So if, if you, and this becomes important in a minute because I talked to you, it, wind is really important. So. When we do that, what I did is applied a lot of plants behind here, and obviously things have changed over 12 years, that are all water sensitive. And they all thrive for about, about six or seven years until we had the really bad drought of 2018, which really knocked them all out. So a log is a windbreak mm. if you put it in the right place. Mm. And so these features and this, this topography starts to create all these micro habitats. So, you know, we get down here, uh, this, this, this roof suffered pretty bad in the 2018 um, uh, drought. And also it gets a lot of traffic in June for about 10 years, a lot of human traffic because it's open. So you see this mound here, you've got, you've got some plantains, you've got some uh, vipers bugloss. Normally the vipers bugloss would be right up here by now, but the two, two weeks of um, that. Yeah. We've got some cold We've got a lot of cold weather, haven't we? Which is it was made been exceptionally cold. Yeah. Um, and obviously when we have a big drought, Chives really, chives can grow, chives, chives are tough as, they're tough as hell, they can suffer most droughts. But when you have a drought and a lot of other things die back, then the chives really seed and they take over, so you've got this beautiful chive field at the moment. Yeah. But there's still a lot of herbs, we seed a lot of this, a lot of herbs have come through. You see over there some more campion, and we've got the honeybees, I'm not a great fan of honeybees on roofs, but um, we've got some oxide daisies coming out here. So why, why are you not such a fan of honeybees on roofs? Because that's, again, it's a very common, oh, you know, well, a lot yeah. of companies are doing it. Is it. Again, is that kind of more of a greenwashy type thing? Or well, is it just... greenwashing, you know, it's not biodiversity. Honeybees are farming. Yeah. And a lot of people yeah. say, oh, honeybees, we're doing something for biodiversity. It's farming. And, 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 you know, the lady who does the honeybees here, she's a beekeeper and I know her very well. And da, da, da. But what happens is there is a bit of green, oh, we put honey beehive on a roof and, you know, it doesn't have to be a green roof and aren't we great? And you go yeah. like, well, you could have done so much well, more. Well, I mean, yeah. you've just done some farming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nothing to do with the environment, honeybees. Mm. But, you know, in these, in these logs, there'll be solitary bees, which are mm. more interesting. And I don't want to, you, know, um, you know, the London beekeepers are saying there's far too many hives in London already. You know, mm. we're nearly at peak, peak thing. So that is a bit of a tick box exercise. In this case, I'm not going to criticise Claire. She's a beekeeper. That's what she does. But it... Become, I've seen a lot of couples go, oh, we'll just get a beehive up there and we'll look good. And I'm going, nah, it's not really thought through. But um, and also you don't need beehives on roofs because you can put beehives anywhere. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't really want them on a green roof because they're competing with the, the solitary bees and the bumblebees. Um, 
<laughs> while we're on the ecology side of things, we ran off earlier to try and get a picture of it. And you've got your camera here right now. Yeah. You know, there's a red start on this roof, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So, yeah, yeah, and that was a bit, that's been a huge objective of green roofs. Could you talk a bit about a bit about that? Yeah, well, why I got involved is because there was this bird, black red starts nesting on all these brownfield sites in Deptford and they were going to build on it. So, you know, to cut the story short, we just went, well, why don't you put the habitat on the roof, you know, which is mm. the brown roof idea. And, you know, the Black Red Start in the city of London, you know, it was really famous after the Second World War for on all the bomb sites, and then it moved out to the power stations. So, you know, there's been a pair that's forages on this roof. This is forage habitat, it's not nesting habitat. For, you know, not the same pair ever since this roof was installed. And, you know, I see it, and sometimes it sings on St Paul's. And there's quite a few. There's another pair over at London Wall, another one up at Bishopsgate. So there's about... I think there's probably about five or six pairs still in the city of London, and they use the green roofs, mm. which is what I started out to try and achieve. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just kind of great, you know. Mm. But you know, the black red star is a pretty Catholic bird. It's pretty resilient. It's at the northwest of its age uh, range in the United Kingdom. It's 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 never going to be as prolific as it is on the continent. Mm. There's, there's a very specific ecological reason for that which we don't need to go into, to be honest, because <laughs> um, we then start talking about robins and competition. But, you know, the Black Red Star became a driver at that time because we was building on all these brownfield sites and they were being recognised for really rare invertebrates, you know, mm. lots of bugs and stuff. And the green roofs fit that equation really well because the guy in Switzerland I met, that's what he was looking at. Mm. How could we replace habitat lost at ground level for rare invertebrates? And so we, we did a P, I got somebody to do a PhD study like they did in Switzerland, and we showed that putting these things up, designed appropriately, you could mitigate for the loss of habitat at, at roof, uh, at ground mm. level. The one thing we miss is, is wet areas. So then we started to look at how we could do wetlands, again, stimulated from Switzerland, because they did a lot of um, ephemeral wetlands. So, you know, you can start to do that. And, and I know uh, I was talking to you before, you know, taking it to another level, there's quite a famous roof actually, um, there's two famous roofs. The most famous is, is a, in Switzerland is called the Volisov Water Treatment Plant. Now the Volisov Water Treatment Plant was built in about um, 1913. And they literally dumped local farmland soil on the roof of these um, uh, water treatment plants. And each, each of them, there's five of them, is the size of a football pitch. Mm. Now, they're pretty big roofs, yeah? Yeah. They're covered now in, I think it's 16 species of orchids. You've got man orchids, you've got um, hellebrines, you've got uh, early marsh orchid, you've got spider orchid, bee orchid. You know, it's fantastic. I just go there, I just, it's heaven. It's just farmland soil on a roof. Well, it's got, they've got about um, 100 mil of gravel. But then you go to St. Gallen, which is a city out in the west of uh, Switzerland, and um, there's this hospital. They put extensive green roofs up there. Technically, the waterproofing drainage system didn't work correctly. Mm -hmm. like, it didn't drain as quickly as it should have done. So a dry grassland has turned into a wet grassland, mm -hmm. and it's covered in purple orchids. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. The Follies Offer one, technically, has a sort of special thing. It's not quite a national park, but it's got legislation, or it's got protection that if they have to do anything to the um, water treatment plant, they have to keep the soil and put it back. It's a legal requirement. <laughs> because the reason being, in, in that part of Zurich, 
you won't find a meadow like that anymore yeah. because of industrial farming. Mm -hmm. So the point there is, you know, if we have the vision, we don't have to go back and say, oh, we want to go back to farmland back in the 18th century in Zurich, you know, and make everything like it was, you know, we can say, right, okay, to future-proof Zurich or London, we can create wet meadows that can have orchids on, which are actually extremely rare in, um, in the United Kingdom, wherever. And just while we're on orchids, there's a roof over um, on the Thames, Namura, which has about seven or eight purple-winged orchids, uh, green-winged orchids that turned up. And also the Islington Recycling Centre a few years ago discovered one. And if you go down the escalator into Rotherhide Tube Station, you can see a green roof and there's purple uh, green-winged orchids on there. Mm. And they just turned up. Mm. So if, you, if I could make some damper areas on here, maybe green-winged orchid would turn up. Yeah. So the point there is, for me, is the trouble is a lot of the time people are just going, right, okay, got to do a green room, get the lights thing, shove it up there. So no, 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 get, get all the right circumstances in and nature will come. Mm. And if we can have orchids on this roof in 10 years' time, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And so we're too formulaic, tick the box, da da da, -da. So, you can't really tell you, but there's an ecological landscape here. There's lots of different mounds. And this was retrofitted onto an existing seed and roof. So you went onto a proper biodiversity. You'd see these big mounds, big gullies. You know, there's lots of pattern on it because you're creating a mosaic of habitat. Mm -hmm. You do that, you're doing something good for nature. And also you've provided an opportunity for other nature that you don't know to arrive. Exactly. That, that, that's how we should be doing it. Yeah, definitely. Got a helicopter. Yeah. So you can see just over there, there's two small green roofs at either end of that paving. You know, that was a planning condition. That's a little bit of a tick box. You know, they're just simple, basic seeding roofs. But right down there, you can see some trees and bushes. That's one poultry. It's a restaurant. So, you know, you've got some trees and bushes and shrubs. And then right over there, below the, the spa, you can just see the trees on Cannon Street Station, which is it was a complete park, yeah? So right opposite here, there's this sort of semi-intensive shrubs and bushes. That was originally a seed and roof, but obviously this company's gone, well, actually, we want to improve things for biodiversity because it's not accessible, and they've gone more of a semi-intensive route. And so on this big, this is new change, you can't really see this tree there, but there's actually a big meadow roof on there, and then right over there, there's two or three green roofs in the distance. Now, the point why I'm saying that is like already just within six, seven hundred meters of this roof, there's all these series of other green roofs. Yeah. So there is a network of habitat. And one of the problems we have sometimes when we think about um, ecology, we, we, we talk about networks and we, we, they're kind of like physical networks where they all have to connect at ground level because they see everything in plan. Well, you know, if you're in, in a mountain range, yeah, not everything sort of linear connected. And so I was, when I first got involved, I went to Switzerland, Switzerland and you know, it's my first trip there, I was talking green roofs, and I went to the R Gorge, which is a really deep gorge, right? It's in, near Maringen. And, you know, I was remember there, and there's this street, and it's only quite, in places it's quite narrow, it's about that narrow. I was watching this blackbird, and it was feeding down on the, you know, stream, the river bed. And then it flew all the way to the top of the gorge, which is probably as tall as Barclays Tower. Mm. And you go, well, okay, this bird in this mountain race doesn't have this problem. So when I look at, look at the city, there's a little green roof down there. From a bird's point of view, it doesn't care about all this. 
It yeah. just, you know, it's just doing what it's doing. But we get this thing, this human perspective, oh, oh no, this is a city. Mm. Well, basically a city, if it was all greened up at different levels, it's just one great big mountain range mm. from an ecological perspective. But because we're locked that it's a city, we can't really perceive that. So to finish up with my little joke, which anybody who knows me will know, you know, so I put one on top of Barclays Tower, 2005. And within, you know, six weeks of this green roof going up, there were six species of bumblebees, grasshoppers, whatever. And people said to me, how do the bumblebees get up there, Dusty? Yeah. I said, well, they get the lift, don't they? And people go like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're joking. But, you know, they did for a moment believe me. Mm. And I use that because people then become so sort of locked in their sort of perspective as a human being. So, you know, Barclays Tower is, um, if I remember rightly now, it's 132 metres high. You know, nobody would question a bumblebee flying from here, 132 metres along a linear path, mm. to another bit of wildflower. When it's on the roof, they go, oh, oh. And you kind of go, that's because it's a struggle for us to think how we would get up there. <laughs> but a bee flying up there, well, you know, I've seen black red starts up there, all sorts of birds up there. It's 132 metres up in the sky. So we kind of sometimes can limit what we will perceive as possible. And, you know, just all over the city of London, even you go into Southwark and you go over into the city of Westminster, there's green roofs everywhere. Now, obviously, we could do with a lot more because there's the potential to retrofit. I mean, we could retrofit 32% of central London. I mean, that would be the equivalent of a massive national park. Forget national park city here, that's just green roofs, yeah? Yeah. Think of the biodiversity we could have there. Think of the, the, the fact that people could come and sit on a roof like this and look over all these other roofs and be part of wildlife. And also we could have gardens and food growing and that diversity of process. Exactly. It's got to be a good thing for a city and it's got to be a good thing for the biodiversity crisis and that climate change adaptation. Definitely. I mean, well, when you have such a range, mosaic of habitats yeah. and, and uses and, you know, just look at the incredible views. People love being in these spaces too, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, as yeah. we said before, it's such an important way for yeah. people to engage with the natural world. Yeah. Um, well, just, you, you know, know, if I may, sorry, there's a new one just being installed on a building there, you know, yeah. and that looks like it's probably a mix of sedum. You know, wherever you see a crane, there'd be a green roof. Yeah. And I've just got to do this with a lady um, put out a treat yesterday and a guy I know, uh, tagged me into it and she was up on the shard she was going down she said oh look at look at the city it's all grey roofs and I said well actually there's yeah. a lot of green roofs she said well I couldn't see any well probably up from the shard mm. it's probably really difficult to see the green roofs so I had to send her a picture of a map you know a Google mm. map and just say look count the number of green roofs now you know maybe I'm patting the city of London on the back too much no 20 years ago there were none yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. so we've got to kind of go yeah that's it. Yeah, it's interesting how this is informing the design of buildings. We were talking previously about the Bosco Verticale in Milan yeah. and how they've, you know, they designed the whole buildings. These incredible, two incredible tech Is it two or more than two? Like two? Three. Three? Yes, three. Three towers, yeah. all completely covered in trees and, and, and plants. Yeah. And it's all been designed off the mountain range nearby, so the, the, the species changes you move yeah, up. Yeah. And yeah. that's got an, you, well, you've, you've been there, so it's better, better you explain than I. Well, I mean, but, I went there in spring oh, a few years ago. I mean, the black caps singing all the way up and down it. I was going like, right, okay. You know, we go like wood black caps. This is vertical black caps. You're like, yeah, just on the mountain slope. And mm. so Laura Gatti, who's a, Laura Gatti, who's a mate of mine, she, she was the arbor, arboriculturalist. 
you know, she said, yeah. And then actually a few years later, they realized that they got it slightly wrong. So they've mm. moved the trees around. They've learned a lot and they're constantly mm. monitoring it. And people go like, all right, it's a very high end, you know, expensive place to live. You go like, yeah, but look how groundbreaking it was. You know, yeah. Stefan Barreri was an academic architect, had an idea, put it into thing, and he's, he's probably the busiest architect in the world at the moment. Good mm. luck to him. Mm. But you know that, that, but there's sensibilities there. You know, the, the top, you know, you know, there's different tree species to the bottom. And, and it's really well thought out. And I walked around with Lara and she was saying like, people always say to us, you know, oh, we can see the birds nesting. You know, people sitting having their breakfast watching the birds nest, you know, these people aren't interested in birds. And you go like, suddenly nature's right, you know, yeah. right in there. And you kind of go, that's where we've got to go. Exactly. You know, a bunch of roses and lawns and, you know, bloody bamboo and, you know, the stuff that, you know, they copy and paste the landscape architects. Oh, that's a roof garden. You go like, mm. no, let's think about it. And having said that, I've, there's a big developer, um, Fargo Wells has got a beautiful green roof. It's not my kind of thing. The developer of that has got some landscape architects and they're doing something over at Waterloo side. And it's, I went up to advise them about some stuff. And again, strips of wildflowers, really thought through different bushes, different shrubs, really, you know, a diverse landscape, very little hard standing. Lots of kind of going from extensive to semi-intensive, intensive, extensive, mixing it all up so you get this kind of diverse, you know, basically roof garden, which is really good for biodiversity and probably is better for people. Mm. We're just going to sit in a, you know, lawn with privet edge on a green roof. Yeah. Which is quite a few of those in London. It. I'm well, it sorry, shows, it shows it's really, really boring. You know? It shows how these motivate people though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, Bosco yeah. Verticale, I'm pretty sure that the amount of trees and plant cover has increased since people started inhabiting it because no, they've, no, they've no, planted no. some of the surrounding areas too, more. No, and no, people no, have increased no, planted no, no. things, I thought. No, no, no. no it's very interesting, Bosco Verticale, because they, it's quite interesting, and I've got to get this correct. The residents don't own the balconies. Do they not? No. No, because what they decided, and this is very, very smart, mm. is to be able to maintain the, the, the Bosco Verticale in terms of how it needs to perform for the whole building, it was decided that that would be in the ownership of the developer mm -hmm. and would be maintained by the developer. The normal method is each one of those balconies would be maintained yeah. in a different way. But they said, no, 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 this thing has to be maintained by one body, mm -hmm. else it will lose its, it, what it's meant to do. So people may have planted some things, but that would have had to be passed mm. through the people who own the balcony, which is not the people who live in the flat. And it's, it's actually a really good concept. It is a good concept. It's a fantastic concept. And I, they have, uh, I haven't been for two, two, three years now, I think it was 2017 I went. They did, they did change, change some of the facades and change, they realized that some of the, I don't know, the cherry trees were doing better around there than they were around there. But you don't have to talk to Lara about that. But I don't think there's been made much change because they, they, they manage all that. Interesting, because yeah, I'd heard people have become, they loved it so much, a lot of people that lived there that they started you know, planting their own stuff and I don't know how true more. that is. I think that might be some, 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 some people wanting it to be true. Speculating it, mm. you know, yeah. Um, mm. Uh, my, my thing is, because I know it's maintained uh, by one maintenance company, 
under the auspices, and Alara's still involved, if I remember rightly. So I think there may be some Chinese whispers going on there. Hmm, interesting. It's, but that's a really interesting point about the management because that's one of the often one of the biggest stumbling yeah, yeah, blocks yeah, yeah. in the landscape world yeah, we, yeah. we come across. Yeah, well, and there I have think to be more innovative ways to kind of to tackle it. Yeah, well, what's really innovative about that? They realised that if they if each one of those flats was sold and within how it was sold, they were then responsible for that. Well, they could go in and cut them all down. Yeah. So there, there was a decision that right actually the envelope is managed mm -hmm. by the the owner. Yeah. And obviously, you know, if the, the residents have got some, some issues and that, you know, obviously there's right and proper processes. But I think that is really, really cool. Well, it's very clever. And it's clever to it's way very, to do it. It's very, very clever, But, yeah. you know, if you go, oh, well, okay, you've got a balcony, it's all your responsibility, oh, I don't like it. Well, I'll you just, just have everyone go in and cut yeah, all the trees down straight away, don't you? Yeah. That's exactly you know. it, yeah. And, you know, what's really, people see that, um, from a landscape point of view, but it's infrastructure. Mm. Because the trees at the top, because you've got to remember it's very, very tall, and it gets quite cool in the winter, if I remember rightly the way Lara's saying it to it. So like, the, the tree cover at the top is specific to the thermal necessities of the top. And the tree cover at the base is to the specific thermal necessities of the spaces at the bottom. So the whole of the tree cover is designed as a form of insulation mm. and varies at what level you are. So the species selection is not just about what's appropriate from, um, will grow in the right place. It's also what those that leaf coverage provides at that level and so you know also when you're at the top it gets very very hot in Milan you need that cooling effect which will be different if you're at the base so it's been thought through from mm. completely as a thermal piece of thermal infrastructure as well mm. if you can think through what that's about it's not just beautification in fact I would have thought um, Stefano started from what is the function of those trees in mm. terms of the building not what they look like. So everybody goes like, it's an idiot, oh, you know, go on LinkedIn, there's always, you know, always the Moscow Verticale. You know, they go, oh, it's all about making this lovely forest up a tree, up a side of a building. No, it's about how you cool that building down and insulate it in the winter and make it look beautiful. Mm -hmm. But the primary starting point was the thermal gain. And that's, the, that, that's important to say. Because most people think, oh, it's about making a beautiful green building. That's it. It's about how it functions for the interior of that building. Exactly. And that's how they're approaching it in other countries yeah, yeah, like yeah. Singapore again. Yeah, yeah. You know, using yeah. it for cooling and things. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, really interesting. Thanks so much for, Not for everything. We really, really appreciate you coming on and spending mm. your time with us and getting us access to this amazing location, incredible views. Yeah. And, and you um, saw the Black Red Star. We did see the Black Red Star. Yeah, amazing. You didn't get a photograph. <laughs> did you get it on Next camera? Time. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe next well, time. Well, I'll have to watch them, won't I? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Well, cheers. And yeah, um, we'll catch up yeah. in the future, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Over a beer in Birmingham. Yeah. Quite a banks. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Make sustainability a priority throughout the design process with a suite of tools built specifically for landscape architecture and design. Vectorworks gives you the freedom to follow your imagination wherever it may lead. With remarkably flexible software that integrates BIM for landscape and GIS workflows, sketch, model, and document in a single tool with the world's most design-centric BIM solution. Discover Vectorworks Landmark and design without limits. Visit vectorworks.net to learn more. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I have. 
If you're interested in finding out more about how we can green the world around us, then maybe check out our episode with Green Finger George, where we talk all about horticulture and what you can do in your own gardens, houses, and even on your windowsill. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share to friends and colleagues who might be interested. And a massive thank you to all of our sponsors, Marshalls and Vectorworks for helping with this episode, and to our incredibly kind supporters, Gillian Goodson Design and the Birmingham Botanical Gardens. Mm -hmm.